Hey guys, you're listening to episode 57 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're talking with Patrick Johnson, founder and president of Generous Church. Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Keelan, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. In this interview, we get to hear from Patrick Johnson, the founder of Generous Church. Patrick began his career in the financial services industry before joining Generous Giving during its foundational years. He also spent a number of years at the National Christian Foundation before formally launching Generous Church, a training platform to catalyze church leaders to create a culture of generosity across their congregations. In recent years, Generous Church has expanded to work primarily internationally and has seen some incredible fruit worldwide. Stay tuned to hear all Patrick had to share. Before we get started, you know this podcast has grown almost exclusively by word of mouth. For those of you who have helped us get the message out there by sending a link to a friend or sharing on social media, we just want to give you a big thanks. It really makes an impact. If you think this or any of our other conversations are thought-provoking or inspiring, take a second to share it with someone who might need to hear it. We have been blown away at how God has used some of these stories to make a radical impact in the world of generosity and missions, and you very well might be a link in that chain. All right, with that, let's get to the interview. All right, here we are with Patrick Johnson, the founder of Generous Church. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It's great to be here with you guys tonight. So why don't you get us started just telling us a little bit about who you are and some of your story. Yep, grew up in Mississippi, the poorest state in the nation, but also one of the most generous states in the nation. If you look at the per capita giving, Mississippi is always up in the top three of states in the country as far as giving goes. So, And that's really interesting, the dynamic between income and generosity and how that changes. So we can talk about that later when we talk about the globe. But grew up in Mississippi, not a Christian family, but God was always with me. Like I can remember milestones in my life as young as when I was in first grade, up into seventh grade, up into college, and had a really supernatural experience in 1991. God got a hold of my heart in a major way and really brought me to himself in a fresh way. And I was in the money business. So I've always been an institutional money manager or a personal financial planner and money manager. So I came to faith in Christ while I was in the money business. And that, that created a lot of conflict, a lot of internal conflict. I kept reading the Sermon on the Mount. And then I was thinking about, okay, I'm managing all this stuff for people and I'm helping them get more stuff. And yet Jesus is saying, don't store up treasure on earth. So like, what does this mean? You know, and how do you reconcile those things? I think that was the start, was a big wrestle. Like, I was so hungry for the Word of God in 1991, 92, 93, really fell in love with Jesus and the gospel in a major way, but yet was for 10 years really wrestled with this idea, Jesus's mental maps on money and our stuff, and how do we walk those maps in a very affluent U.S. Western culture? So that's sort of where it started. You may keep going on. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So 10 years really wrestled with that, managing money, you know, reading the Word of God. I can just remember my journals from that time were just like all over the place. Like, how do you figure this out? And really wrestled with it. And I was sitting in my office where I was managing money one day, and I heard the still small voice saying, I want you to preach in your church on money. (laughs) And I was like, first of all, I've never preached. 
First time I ever preach, I surely don't want to preach on money. Like, what a bad <laughs> idea. So I picked up the phone sort of sheepishly because I wanted to be obedient. And I called my pastor and I said, Tim, I said, I, I think God wants me to preach on money in the church. And I was hoping that he would say, like, that's a dumb idea. Like, I'm not going to give you my pulpit. Like, you're never going to preach on money. But unfortunately, he said, I think that's a great idea. I think you should preach on money. And I said, oh, gulp. Like, what What do I do now? <laughs> so I'll never forget. So I was trying to, like, I was reading John Piper, desire, you know, and, and trying to figure out, like, maybe I could preach something Piper has done. But that wasn't working. You know, here's a tip to anybody. If you ever preach your first time, don't try to preach John Piper's content. <laughs> it's pretty deep. And there was no way I was going to make that work. And so I remember I got on the phone and I called up my local Christian bookstore. Yeah, I remember when they used to have physical Christian bookstores back in the day, you know, mm-hmm. and I said, basically, you know, I need something on money and giving and God. What do you got? He says, we just got this new book in. It's called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcord. And it's new. And so why don't you come down and get a copy? And so I immediately drove down to the bookstore, got a copy. And I think a couple of days later, I actually opened it up in my office and I read it. And for two and a half hours, I can remember reading that book all the way through. You know, it's a short little book that Randy did. And just I can remember sitting there thinking, this is everything I've been wrestling with for 10 years that's summarized in this short two and a half hour book. Like all the angst I had trying to reconcile the words of Jesus and money. Randy did such a great job. And so basically my first sermon was the treasure principle. I just preached the treasure principle. You know, I used some of the keys from it. I preached it and it was awesome. Like it was incredible. I had such a great time doing it. And that was my first really jump into generosity. And after that sermon, I thought, you know, God, I may want to do this for a living. Like, this is something I'm really energized about. But if you guys know me, I'll jump out of a plane without a parachute and figure it out on the way down. Like, I'm that kind of person (laughs) that I will take foolish risk, you know, if I feel like I want to do something. And so I thought, you know what, I'll just sit on it for a while. I'm just going to let it sit there and see if anything happens. And I almost took a pastor of stewardship job in Mariner's Church in Southern California. That would have been in 2003, 2004. They were looking for a pastor of stewardship. The door closed at the last minute on that. And I ended up getting a call from Daryl Hill. They just started generous giving. And they said, basically, hey, you know, we've got generous giving going, but we need a church strategy. And would you mind coming on and developing the church strategy for us? That was 2003. That was all I needed. Like that was the confirmation. And I left my job managing money and I've been in the generosity space since 2003, which is crazy to think about. I started when I was 35 and I'm 58 now. So I had been in the space for that long, which is really weird to think about, honestly. Well, Patrick, I want to dig in a little more on that 10 year period where all these thoughts are going through your head. And I think maybe even someone who listens to this conversation is exposed to some of these concepts from scripture about money. And they're starting to struggle and wrestle with, this is what Jesus says about money, but this is how I've always learned about it and approached it. And I got to take account for the differences there. What would you say to that person who's in that same period that you were in, that wrestling? Yeah. So a couple of things. What really drives me around the message of generosity is the gospel. Like, Guys, I have been forgiven so much, and I'm still forgiven so much every single day. I am a wanderer by heart. That's my nature. 
And God never has let me go. He always brings me back. And so for someone who's wrestling with it, it's a good wrestle. And remember, the wrestle you're having, you have a God that loves you absolutely, completely. There is no guilt. There's no shame. We're going to make mistakes, but you have a God who doesn't hold your mistakes against you. And so I would enter into this struggle just grounded in the gospel. You can't do anything to make God love you more. You can't do anything to make God love you less. And that was a huge part of my journey and still drives me. I remember Randy says, stare at Jesus long enough and you'll become a giver. Give long enough and you'll become more like Christ. And I just love that. I mean, this is about Jesus. This is about discipleship. So first of all, we ground it in who Jesus is. The second thing is, Jesus didn't give us, you know, you need to give this percentage. You can only store up this much in net worth. He gave us principles. He gave us what we call mental maps. So one mental map you might want to think about is money can be dangerous, right? That's a mental map of Jesus. We see it in the rich young ruler. We see it in you can't serve God in what? Mammon, right? I mean, over and over again, Jesus told stories. We see it in the parable of the sower, the seed that fell among the thorns. It was the deceitfulness of wealth that choked out the fruitfulness. So Jesus, I think one thing we need to realize as you struggle with this is money has a particular power to it that is unique. And Jesus warned us against that. So this is something you have to address as a follower of Jesus. You just have to. You cannot leave it off the table. So it's crucial. That's number one. So first of all, it's grounded in the gospel. You'll always be loved. Number two, there's danger around this. And then number three, I think it's just a process. Like it's a process that happens in community and conversations. I've learned so much in my own giving journey and in working globally now you just, you're never going to figure it all out. Like it's never going to come to an end. Just like your sanctification is not, you know, okay, we'll figure it out in five years and we'll be at the top of the mountain. You're going to wrestle through this. And then I would also, here's something really important if you're in the West, is there are systems set up in the West that go against this message of giving and generosity. And they are powerful. And they are funded for by billions of dollars a year to make you feel like you're not enough, like you need more, like you need to be safe and you've got to be secure and it's up to you. So realize too that if you're in the West, there's a system, there's systems set up that go really to the antithesis of what Jesus told us and commanded us to do. So I think, especially since I've been traveling the globe over the last three years, it makes me sort of understand the systems of the West even that much more. So gospel, number one, so you'll always be loved. Number two, it is dangerous. It's a warning that Jesus gives us. Number three, we live in a culture where systems are set up not to encourage us to do what Jesus told us, but to do the opposite, right? And then number four, you need it in community. Like you need to talk about this. I remember I did a conference with Andy Crouch one time, and he said this, I'll never forget it. He said, money is a particularly effective idol. He said, because it keeps its power in the dark. And you can count it and you can store it. So money is a particularly effective vital because you can count it, you can store it, and it keeps its power when you keep it in the dark. And then, by the way, what Andy did after this was a room full of pastors. He said, I'm going to tell you how much I made last year. He said, I'm going to tell you how much I gave away last year. And he just did it from the stage to sort of break like the taboo of money. He told him how much he made. He told him how much he gave away because he wanted to use that as an object lesson 
that, listen, you've got to bring this out of the dark. We've got to talk about this to break its hold over us. And then I finally say this. Is, I remember Jimmy Seibert says, you know, I looked at the whole scripture. He's a pastor in Waco. And he said, I see a little bit of passages on investing and saving and debt. But he said, when I look at the narrative of scripture, it's about generous giving. Like the narrative, the overarching theme of Scripture is not about investing. It's not about savings. Those are in there. It's not about debt. It does talk about that. But those verses compared to the narrative of generous giving, they don't compare. And so I think this, yeah, as you wrestle with this, there's a lot to say about it. And don't get sucked into the, don't take like Western Christianity and wrap it around a stewardship message and dilute the Word of God. I think that's so easy for us to do. And I think a lot of the teaching we have in the West, it's biblical principles with a very Western wrapper wrapped around it. It's more palatable for us in the West. Why don't you just take Scripture like face up for what it is and sit with God and ask God, what would you have me do out of this passage? Because there is no formula for this, right? There's no formula. It's basically abiding and obeying. We abide with Jesus we hear what he says, and then we go out and we obey it. And it's messy, and it's ugly at times, and we make mistakes, but we also have great joys as well. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. And I think what stood out to me the most is everything about generosity is founded in the gospel and in a relationship with Christ. And that is what fuels generosity, and generosity fuels that relationship as well. And I mean, you said it so well. You mentioned starting at generous giving not too long after you kind of started to dive into a lot of this. And I think those are some of the early days of generous giving. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience there, what it was kind of like. You said you were working on a church strategy. And so, you know, how you kind of approached that and the experience you guys had in those early days. Yeah. So that was a great story. So here I come from out of the business world, never have done ministry before. So you guys, you're in the investment business, Cody. I felt like a new money manager that had just been given the Fidelity Magellan Fund to manage. (laughs) You know, it was like, I was so new and such a newbie, but I had one thing going for me. I had a couple of things. Number one, I was privately funded, so I had nothing to sell. So I was safe. And then number two, I really had no framework. Like I didn't approach it from a framework. So what I did is I just went out and started meeting with really great leaders in churches all across the U.S. who are really serious about this topic. People like Andy Stanley, Rick Warren teaches a lot on this. Generous Giving gave me a door to go in and really interact with some great leaders. And so then I started networking them together. Like, you know, Lincoln Berean Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, you're doing some great things. You need to meet. Highland Park Presbyterian Church in Dallas. You guys need to get together because you're tackling the same issue. So really for about three to four years, I did nothing but network and hook churches together. And then in 2004, I did my first conference with Andy Stanley at North Point. So my first conference was Andy North Point, Rick Warren, Johnny Hunt, Randy Pope. It was like a star-studded thing, my first conference. Andy was so gracious, and he really helped me manage it. I figured out this really quickly, is that nobody was going after the leaders of churches. You had a lot of great bottom-up approaches like Crown and Dave Ramsey, and those were good. And normally you would find someone in the church who was an advocate for that, and they were champion in the church. 
But there weren't back in the early 2000s, there weren't a lot of people convening church leaders together like pastors and elders and staff and really creating an environment where those people could go into this topic as well. And I think one of the great things we did in the early 2000s was we really reframed the idea of generosity around discipleship. So it wasn't a lot of talk back then on the idea that generosity is a part of discipleship, just like prayer, just like Bible reading, just like any other part of your discipleship, fellowship. And I think what we were able to do by platforming some great teachers and speakers was we started to raise the awareness that this is about discipleship. It's not about fundraising. It's not about capital campaigns. It's not about buildings. It's not about meeting the budget. You know, if you're serious about growing disciples in a Western context, you better start discipling around this issue. And people like Andy and others like them, they do a great job of it. So basically, we gave them a voice and gave them a platform to reach other pastors. And we did that for four to five years and really saw some great things happen in that time. So it was wonderful. It was a wonderful time. It was fun. It was, you know, sort of the wild, wild west. We were just sort of making it up as we go. But man, I look back on it, see what God did, and it was really amazing. So those were the first five years that I did that. One other thing I'll say, too, is, you know, you think about gospel. We talked about the gospel. But then another huge milestone was this issue of discipleship. And this is one of the messages I carry around the globe. And you would think that this is so basic, but it's like people never have considered this, is that generosity is about discipleship, core. I mean, that's exactly right. We were created in the image of a generous God to be generous. So when we come to faith in Christ, one of the things we should become is more and more and more generous. That's what it's about. That's exactly what it's about. It's not about strategies and techniques, and those are all important. But the core of this is about discipleship. And so don't think you can be a disciple of Jesus and leave this off the table. I don't think in a Western context that that's possible to do. I think it's a blind spot if you're not really thinking through it. So I think for four or five years when I was at Generous Giving, we really helped church leaders raise it up to a new awareness, a new level. But one of the things I will say is I started to see the word generosity get hijacked, just like we hijacked other words in the evangelical church. You know, stewardship used to be a great word with a lot of meaning. Then it became more of a campaign that you do once a year or capital campaign. And then the capital campaign has got a hold of generosity. Then it became like a fundraising campaign. So I'm not against fundraising. I do that for my own ministry. So it's not a slam, but I just don't want us to lose the essence of what I think it is, which is discipleship. Well, Patrick, I think Keelan and I have experienced just in the last couple of years, the power of networking with strong Christians who have you know, our particular focus or passion and the people that we've been talking to have generosity toward the top of their list. And it's really shaped the way that we see the world and the way that we steward what God has trusted us with. And so for you to have that opportunity in those early years to do that full time, I imagine had a pretty profound effect on you as an individual. And I'd love to hear more about what happened after those early years. So, you know, what's fascinating, guess, and you'll love this based on sort of what you're about. So one of the things, you know, that is a great point, Cody. I've gotten to hang out with some super generous people. I mean, like people that are so far ahead of me 
in this journey. And really early on, you know, I was really passionate, but I didn't have a lot of structure around it. I was just out there doing it. And then I would meet people like Jimmy Seibert at Antioch Community Church, you know, who's a pastor who chose to live on the median household income in the U.S. And so that's how he started the church. If you're on staff there, you live on the median household income because they're sending missionaries all over the world. And they said, we're not going to live high on the hog here in the U.S. when we're sending people out to suffer and possibly die. So people like him, Pete Oaks, Pete's an uh, entrepreneur. I was just on the phone with him the other day, and his goal was to make a lot of money so his 10% to God would be big, but he would live on the other 90 like he wanted to. And now I think it's just the opposite. You know, He lives just the opposite way. He lives on 10% and gives 90% away. You know, over and over, Renee Lockie, I just think about the people I've gotten to meet over the years and a couple things about them. Number one, one of the common things they all shared was they set a spending finish line. And I cannot say that enough, that one of the common characteristics of the most generous people I've ever met, basically, they decided we're going to live at a certain standard and they're all different, like they're not one standard. You know, mm-hmm. it's whatever they felt like God was calling them to live at, whatever their profession was. And then they gave everything else above away. You know, I got to spend time with Stanley Tam. He's in his hundreds now. He gave his business to God in 1950 when it was grossing like $20,000 a year, maybe not even that much. He said, I can't do this. This is going to fail. So I'm going to give it to God. And over 60 years, he gave away $100 million and he lived on $72,000 a year. I think that was his maximum salary. You know, we all know Alan Barnhart and Catherine. I've spent time with them and Barnhart Crane. Same thing. They set a very modest lifestyle and said, we're going to give everything else away over that. So the idea of a finished spending line, I tell people all the time, that's a common characteristic I've seen in the most generous people I know. They decide how much is enough. And, you know, you think about it, it used to be like how much is enough is to save, like, What's your finish line as far as like savings? Like if I have this much, then I'll give everything over that. That's good. And there's a lot of people that could you know, save a lot more that have chosen to cap it at a certain amount and give everything over. But I think a finished spending line where you set a cap on your today's standard of living is a really powerful idea. So that's one thing. Second thing, these are some of the most joyous people I've ever met. Like they're just they're good people. And another thing I noticed is they're not very complicated. They don't make it that complex, which is really, you know, I tend to overthink everything and I can make things super complex. But I remember sitting with Alan Barnhart around a table with some givers one time and he was talking about, you know, well, how do I know to make this financial decision? And, and somebody asked him that. And he said, well, you know what I do is I just go ask the owner, what does he want you to do with it? <laughs> like it was that simple to Alan, like. You know, you've got it all looking at the strategy and everything on this decision. He said, no, I just go ask God, the owner, what do you want me to do? And just listen for that and obey it. So I would say, number one, they set up a finish line of what they were going to live on. Number two, they're super joyous people. They're free people. They're not enslaved by their stuff, which they could be, right? They all could be. And then number three, they keep it really simple. It goes back to that idea of abiding and obeying. I think generosity is the fruit of a life lived in relationship with Christ. You know, Mm -hmm. so the root, like what is generosity? It's a fruit of the spirit. It's kindness, right? Kindness is an idea of generosity. It's a fruit of a life that's lived in relationship with Christ. And I saw that in every generous person I met was they have a deep abiding 
relationship with Christ that's real. It's tangent. It's just not something out there. It is super real. And so it was, man, what a joy. And listen, they messed up. Like I had good friends that walked this journey with me in the early years, pastors and leaders who were super generous. And yeah, so we're not immune to mistakes, even when we're walking this. And some of the biggest wounds I have are people that I did ministry with. I put them on those platforms and they're good. They're good people, but they made mistakes and they messed up. And so I think that's another thing. It's just that, you know, we may mess up. And so it's important to have these kind of conversations and relationships around us to help us in that, because this is not an easy journey. Like we're going to make mistakes. We just don't want to be disqualified with those mistakes. So were you with Generous Giving for five years or did you do something in between before launching into Generous Church? Yeah, so five years. Then I went to work for the National Christian Foundation for around four to five years in Atlanta. I focused on their advisor channel as well as their church channel. And so I did that for five years. And then I started Generous Church in 2011. So tell us a little bit about your time then with NCF. Was that a different experience for you than your time with Generous Giving? Or did you see a lot of the same kind of themes? No, very, very different. So Generous Giving is really, it was a ministry to create these neutral environments where people could come together of wealth and high capacity. So it's a neutral platform. There's no ask. It's motivation. It's all about the heart, the why. So they were throwing gasoline on the fire. NCF was more like, okay, once you have the gasoline thrown on it and you've got more than you ever thought, how do you give it away wisely? What do you use? What kind of tools and techniques? So it was a very different platform than generous giving. Let me just tell you a story. So Terry Parker started uh, National Christian Foundation. He and Ron Blue and Larry Burkett were good buddies. And they would always talk about different things. I knew Ron and Terry. I never met Larry Burkett, but they were telling me about, you know, they encouraged when Terry Parker was a lawyer, they were talking to him about creating this kind of platform that became NCL, like the Donor Advice Fund. I think Terry Parker wrote the first IRS. He got the first IRS letter, which may establish the Donor Advice Fund. He used to keep it in his desk is what I heard. And so here was a guy who was a high-powered Atlanta lawyer who had a heart for giving, who figured out how to do it well to serve a lot of people. And let me tell you, Terry Parker, that's the main thing I took away from NCF. This guy was a humble, humble servant who would serve anybody. You didn't have to be rich. He would go and have conversations with anyone who wanted to talk about giving. And I think God honored that. I really believe in my gut that the reason NCF is so successful today is because Terry Parker's heart and his generous heart and how he treated people. And, you know, people like David Wills and others like that have such a generous heart. And I think God honors that. I've seen them go through some turmoil. And in the midst of that turmoil, how they treated people who had hurt them, I'll never forget it. Like they just treated people differently. And I think that's, you know, NCF has got a reputation. It's about lawyers and strategies, and they're all great at that. And that's good stuff. But at the end of the day, man, that impressed me so much so that when I was feeling called to go out and start Generous Church, they gave me like a year to figure out what it was. Like, okay, you want to launch it, then what do you want to do? So why don't you stay on our platform, figure it out, and then we'll release you to go do it. And that's like, 
I mean, come on. Is that not a walk in the walk right there? And they have done that consistently for decades. Uh, people like Roger Sandberg. I mean, that guy is as good as the salt of the earth. And I mean, I just know so many good people there. And that's a tough, you know, NCF is a tough model. Like they're giving away so much money that they would make money on float if they just kept it. Like what a lot of the big investment firms, they'll have donor advised funds, but they don't want you to give it away. They want you to keep it in your donor advised fund so they can make the float in the investment fees. And the NCF's just the difference. I think 60% goes out into giving every year. That's a hard model to build a revenue stream on, but God's blessed them. So I, I love the folks in NCF, as you can tell. I'm a big fan of who they are. Yeah, that's a really cool perspective. I like the way that you kind of framed the important but unique roles of these different organizations that you've been part of that we've become familiar with as well. So after your time with NCF, what led to the creation of Generous Church during that year, that exploratory year that you had? How did you decide to specifically go into the area that you have? I think just one thing, it was born out of necessity. I felt like in NCF, I was focused on a lot of different things and I was doing nothing very well. I felt like I was too spread out. So I knew that I needed to focus. So I really had some time where I tried to explore, like, what should I focus on? I could focus on professional advisors, givers, ministries, churches. And I still saw in the church landscape, there was a big need in the West for this idea of generosity. And so that's really so I think it was, there was a necessity of being spread too thin. There was a need in the market to really keep doing this and to keep pounding this home because it's such a tough message for a lot of churches in the West. And so I saw the need. And then also I went through some family issues at the time. So we had to move because of some family issues. And so it was the time. The timing was right as well. It was time for a new start to do something different. So that's when I started 2011. And really when I started Generous Church – I really took what I was doing at Generous Giving for the most part and sort of laid dormant for five years and just started doing it again. And so I started doing events. I started doing resources. So I worked with Gordon McDonald to put out the generosity devotional. I worked with Chip Ingram to do Genius of Generosity. So I saw there was a need for resources out into the church for discipleship. I started doing web and delivering things by the web and those kind of things. But I added one dimension to it, and that was coaching. I started coaching some of these larger churches just on a one-on-one basis to really get down into the mud with them and to really try to figure out culture. So, you know, we talk about culture a lot. And, you know, one of the things that caught on in the early days of generosity is we want to build a culture of generosity in our church. But nobody could ever define that. Like, what does that mean? Okay, I heard this great definition. Somebody said that culture is what most of the people do most of the time. So we live in a technology culture, right? So we're all sitting here talking by Zoom. We're a technology culture. When I walk on an airplane, what are most of the people doing most of the time? They're on their phones, right? They're on their, they're watching movies on their iPads or working on their laptops. We live in a technological culture, and so it's everywhere. So I started asking the question in 2011, what if most of the people most of the time in churches in the U.S. were generous? And what would it take to do that? And so instead of doing like big events and resources, I got down for eight years in the mud with a lot of great churches all over the country and really worked on this idea of culture of generosity. How do we truly shape a culture where most of the people, most of the time are living or moving toward a more generous life? And boy, that was we could talk for two hours on 
some of the things I've seen, good and the bad and everything in between. So I think that coaching element, it was a really hard element, but I learned a lot. Like I really learned a ton getting down in the trenches with these pastors and these leaders and trying to figure this out, working with mega, mega, mega churches all the way down to churches of 200. Like I did it all around the board on this idea of creating cultures of generosity. So that's sort of my journey into Generous Church. And so really from 2011 to 2019, for eight years, I really spent in the trenches with churches in the West working on this idea. Yeah, so that's a really interesting concept, a culture of generosity, specifically within the church. And I feel like we hear a lot of stories about individuals who have been captured by generosity. And honestly, what we hear a lot of is people feeling like they're alone and, you know, finding somebody four states over who has a similar kind of story and passion to them. And organizations like Generous Giving are amazing at connecting those people. But the idea of capturing an entire church congregation and creating that kind of a, a heart change in culture, honestly, to me, sounds really intimidating. And I would love to hear how you go about that, you know, in all of your experience, what you have seen really creates an environment for change and just to fuel that kind of movement. So that's a really, there's a lot of tentacles around this question. Okay. So I'm going to just share some of the things that I've learned. So number one, I think I've surveyed around 40,000 Christians and churches on their giving journey. So we had a survey that we did that if we were going to consult with the church, you could actually do it on your phone. You would do it during the service. They would take 10 minutes out. You would get on your phone and you would tell us about your giving journey. Because if you're going to change culture, the first thing you have to do is like, what is the culture? Outside of the metrics that we know about giving and those kind of things, we can look at the giving numbers, but what are people's obstacles? What are their beliefs? What are their practices around this idea of generosity? And so I think we got about 40,000 in our database of this kind of data. It's fascinating, okay? And I'm working here with some of the best Bible teaching churches in the country. Okay, so these are not slouches, okay? These are really serious Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches. Okay, so a couple of things. Number one, go back to our gospel. When you cross-tab motivation with financial giving, the number one giver is somebody who's motivated by grace or the gospel. That motivation trumps obedience. It trumps obligation. It trumps love. It trumps seeing a need and meeting it. Because we, we ask people, what's your primary motivation? Then we cross-tabbed it against what people were giving. And it was by far those people who were really motivated by the gospel and by grace were the most generous giver from a financial perspective. So that's one thing I learned. We're talking culture here, right? So if I was a pastor and I was going to start really having a culture of generosity, I better be sure that the gospel is at the center of this because that mm -hmm. was the primary driver. Okay. Second thing I learned, the biggest obstacle to generosity, what do you guys think it is? Like if we asked, like, if you think about the data, what would be the biggest obstacle to generous giving that people would self-profess? What do you think it is? Yeah. What's your idea? I'd love to hear what you think. I'd probably say security. Okay. Cody. Yeah. I was going to say fear. You both nailed it. I mean, sort of like you're talking about the same thing. The biggest obstacle to generous living is fear. 
It's this narrative of scarcity that we have in the West that is really palpable. And we saw it all in the data. Was it? And to go back, remember when we started talking about these systems that are set up in the U.S. that go against what Jesus said? They create fear. They create unrest. They create need. We saw it in the data. Is that people who had no reason to fear, had no reason, right? I mean, especially from a global perspective, right? We have no reason to fear, legitimate reason, but yet we're scared. We saw it over and over and over again. Third thing we learned is So let me piggyback on that. So if that is the greatest obstacle, what's the way to overcome that obstacle? So this is interesting. It's to focus on who God is. So you're not going to talk people out of fear. They have to have a different view of who God is. And so one of the things that I teach all over the globe is that God is not only owner, but he's also your loving father provider. God is owner, yes, cattle on a thousand hills, but he's also your loving father provider. Because if you have a view of God as a loving provider who is your father, then that will melt the fear away and you can give open-handedly. So that was another thing that we learned is that that's fear and the way to break fears. You don't focus on like, how do you be more brave or how do you be more disciplined? You focus first on who God is and let it all flow out of that, okay? So that was another learning. The third thing is the vast majorities of Christians that we surveyed in American suburban churches did not intentionally engage with the poor. I think the number was less than 9%. So when we looked at, you know, 40,000 Christians and we asked them how they engaged the poor, less than 9% would intentionally engage the poor. They might see a need and they would meet the need. Or they might have a call. So that's a huge miss in our church culture in the U.S. Is We know it, right? We live in suburbs and we have gated communities and we come in and we close our garage door and we don't know our neighbors. But it's not even that. It's like we're so segregated in cities that we have no poor friends around us. So I think this is a really big idea as well. If you're in a suburban, white, Christian area— As churches, what can you do to connect people to the poor outside of just like, okay, we're going to do a weekend where we take people down there? It's got to be more than that. That doesn't do it. So I think that's a big idea as well. So if you want people to be more generous, they need to have friends who are not like them. They need to have friends that they can learn from a different way of life. That was a big one. Let me keep going. Here's something I told pastors all the time, and they didn't like this, but this is true. When I look at the data— It's not a lack of knowledge. Like people know the right knowledge. It's a lack of practice. So when we would look at, you know, we would do a four quadrant axis. The vertical axis would be your perspective on generosity. The horizontal axis would be your practice of generosity. And over and over again, people are above the midline on perspective. Like they know the right answers. They will say that God owns it all. Mm -hmm. But when you look at what they practice, and their holistic generosity, their financial giving, their time, the engagement with the poor, they were below the midline or to the left of the midline on practice. And so I told pastors all the time, I don't think it's an issue of preaching people into this. They already know the right answers. Something is happening that's causing them not to practice it. And it's complicated, right? You said it, Keelan. You said this is like a culture 
is a really hard thing. Like that's a big task and it's complicated, but I can tell you it's not because suburban Bible teaching churches don't know the right answers. It's something is keeping people from living this way, even though they have the right head knowledge. One of the churches I did was a church in Atlanta, and I love this church. And it was so normally what you saw is like we asked people their role in the church. And if you know, you could do I visit, I regularly attend, I'm actively engaged in ministry, I'm on staff, or I'm an elder. You know, so we looked at your role. And then we started cross-tabbing role against all these generosity ideas. Like, And normally what you would find in a church is, you know, the people who just attend, you know, they're just visitors. They don't have much of a generosity journey. When you're a regular attender, you definitely see as you get more engaged that your journey starts to go up and to the right, if you will. Your perspective and your practice changes. But then we also see like it doesn't go far out into the congregation. Like it doesn't go way in to the congregation. And so there was one church that really was an outlier. And this church was in Atlanta. And when you looked at all of their data, you didn't have much of a drop off anywhere in the church. It was pretty consistent all the way across it. And one of the things we learned was this church was started as a disciple making church. The pastor wasn't a great preacher. So he grabbed some people. He started discipling them. Then that grew into more people. They were being discipled. And there was a culture that this church had grown to about 7,000 or 8,000 in Atlanta. But the culture, the 35-year culture of the church was so disciple-focused that I think that was the answer. I think as they grew, they didn't see a drop-off because the law of numbers start to work against you. Because you were being discipled and generosity was something you were being discipled in, the numbers didn't work against you. In this church. And so that really brings it back to the idea that this is about disciple making. That if you're truly disciple, and that's one of the sad things I think in the US church is I think the numbers work against us. The bigger it gets, the harder it gets to be discipling people. You get a large crowd, it looks successful, but the reality is when you look at those people's lives in the area of generosity, which is probably a barometer of their prayer life, any other life they're living as far as a disciple of Jesus. It's just not there. So that's another thing. I found the best church to work with, if you wanted to build culture, was about 750 to 1,200. That that was a church that was a great church to make progress in because it was big enough to have an impact, but it was small enough where you weren't fighting the law of numbers as far as that church goes. So I'm rambling, but that's the kind of stuff I was trying to tackle. Well, Patrick, there's a lot there. I'm really curious, when you work with a church— how do you define success? And maybe you could use some examples with like a before and after that could help us understand the impact that this message has. Yeah. So great question. Number one, I don't think you ultimately never define ultimate success because things are going to change. Church culture will change. But let me tell you one, a couple of stories. Brookfield Christian Reformed Church in Brookfield, Wisconsin, church of about 1,000, 1,200 Gosh, these people were so great. And so we did the survey. We saw one of the things they did. They weren't great storytellers. They were very, like, held everything close. You know, these are German Christian Reformed folks, and they're going to keep it very close to the vest. And so I did a lot of work with their leadership teams, and they really got a hold of it. Like, their leaders just lit up with it. And then we did a lot of work in the church to the point that they decided that they were going to buy 
well digger for a village in Africa they had a relationship with. And they thought, oh, it won't be that big a deal. Come on, we can raise some money. We're going to buy a well digger. And they thought it was going to cost like 50 and it ended up costing 200000 And it was such a journey to get it over there. But one of the things they did was they did a water walk around their community because they were trying to show people that, you know what, these people don't have water. And this is why we're doing this for this village in Africa. So they started getting their neighbors involved in it. And they made like one of the front pages of the Milwaukee Sentinel newspaper, whatever it is, this one church that had gone out and done a water walk for clean. So it sort of like was viral. It went viral in that church. We did a survey like two years later, sort of a before and after. And across the board, we saw increases in financial giving, engagement with the poor, all the things we talked about over two years, we saw a huge culture shift. And this is the greatest thing, okay? So this was probably early on. This was probably 2004, 2005. I think in 2018, I was in Milwaukee and I just was going to stop. I just decided I was going to stop by. I didn't call or anything. And I walk in, you know, I still know some of the people there and they say, oh yeah, the pastor's here. He's preparing for his sermon. And so I go in and open his office and he's got on his board written his sermon points out. And one of the sermons points is generosity. This was 2018. And I thought, you know what? That's what it's about. I still talk to people from 2002 to 2003 pastors who that when I talk to them, they tell me what they're doing today in the area of generosity. That's how you know you're successful, right? Where it doesn't like we did it for a season and then it's gone. Not that it's everything. Like you can't build it every week on generosity, right? But you intentionally weave it into the fabric of your church. And that's just one story. Great, you know, viral generosity within their community. Great data. Pastors still engaged in it today. That's another thing, too, is I always knew that if I could get the leaders, I could most likely get the church. But if I didn't have the leaders, I would never get the church. Right. I'm not a big top down person. I believe in the priesthood of the believers. I believe we all contribute to the body of Christ. But in most Western cultures, if the leader gets it and he or she really dives into it personally and and as a shepherd or a teacher of the church, the church will get it over time. Over and over again, I've seen that. So, but it's complicated. Like, I think, which is a great reason to the transition globally because it almost killed me. Like, eight years of being (laughs) in that and just doing it over. And you never knew, like, it's not a capital campaign where you knew there's going to be a date where we're going to get our pledges and we'll know how we did. And then it was never that. It was always culture shaping. And that is really hard work. Yeah. And now that you mentioned that, I know that you do a lot of international work now. Tell us a little bit about how that got incorporated into what you had already been doing. So 2019, I hit a wall. I was just like, okay, I don't know if I can just keep doing this. And so I went through a season of prayer and fasting with my team. And we really asked God, like, what's next? You know? I was even thinking about like going back into the business world again, like I was prepared to do that. And God is amazing. So one of the things he told me was, I want you to put together a group of contenders to pray for a movement of global generosity. And so every June, we pull together people from all over the world. This was June of 2019 was our first one where we spend a month praying and fasting and asking God for a movement of global generosity. And that was phenomenal. Like that gave me the confidence, like, okay, who prays for generosity? Nobody's going to want to pray with me. And the first year in June, we had 72 people sign up to pray and fast for the month of June around global generosity. So that was like a big confirmation was, I told you to raise up contenders. 
and you did it. And so then the second thing that we heard was you're thinking addition, you need to think multiplication. That was the second thing. You're thinking addition, you need to think multiplication. And so we said, okay, so what does that look like? Like, How do we multiply? So I thought it was just give everything away for free in the West and everything. I wouldn't charge for anything. Whatever you wanted, I would give you in the West. And what happened was we went global. God opened the door to take this message globally. And through a series of divine appointments, it was phenomenal. I met with one of the biggest leadership development firms around the globe, and I was trying to talk to him about generosity and doing it in the U.S. And he said, Patrick, the U.S. doesn't need it. The world needs it. <laughs> so come on and let's do it in the world. And so I hooked up with him and a guy named Malcolm Weber at LeaderSource, and I took it to his 40 countries, and we all met in Cambodia. I spent a day casting vision, just like we're doing now, talking like we're talking now. And at the end of the day, he didn't want to force it on him. He said, does the world need this message? And they all said, yes, the world needs this message. And so Leader Source was the first global network that we started working with, which it's sort of like remember back in 2003 when I joined Generous Giving, I did my first event with Andy Stanley. This is sort of the global perspective of that. Nobody knows who Malcolm or Leader Source is, but it's that equivalent. Like it's the equivalent of that. And he's been my mentor. So the last three years as we've taken this around the globe, Malcolm's been a huge mentor of mine. And let me tell you, the world loves this message. Like the world, they love it. And, you know, we all know the blue ocean idea. It is blue ocean out in the world. Like they don't have podcasts like this. They don't have books by Ron Blue or other Randy Alcorn. A lot of countries we go into have never even considered this topic. And it is blue ocean out there. The question is, how do you take it out there? That's the key question. That's what's even cooler. So can I talk about that for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So think about how we take things from the West to the rest of the world to teach them. Let's talk about Christian, okay? So if a great expert will write a book on prayer, okay? Somebody in the West will write a book on prayer, and basically that book will make it over to Egypt. And what they'll do in Egypt is they'll translate it to Arabic. They'll try to get contextualize it a little bit if the expert will let them contextualize it. Okay, that's pretty much how we do it. Or the person that wrote the book on prayer will go over to Egypt and he'll preach or she'll preach on prayer for a week to large crowds and then she'll leave. And it will have done some good. Right. People will have new knowledge, but you don't really know. So that's the first model is the expert model. We write the book. We create the program. We take it overseas and we try to spread it. The second thing is the train the trainer model. So we basically, we create a program like a jog, a journey of generosity. We take that globally and we try to contextualize it so that global people and their success in that, and then we train people how to do it. So that's the second model. But the third model is what we call the design model. Okay. And that is where you go to global Christians and you help them design their own training that is totally contextualized that is totally owned by them, and that then they spread through their networks. So we've created a process called the Generosity Design Lab, where we work with global church and ministry networks, like denominations, like sports ministries, all around the globe, where over two and a half days, we've developed a process to help them design their own generosity training that's totally contextualized, that they own, that fits how they train, and doesn't even have our brand on it. Like we truly give it all away to them. And it is so cool. It is so cool because, first of all, these global leaders, they're awesome. Like they know how to design training. They know how to disciple. All we get to do is carry this 
one little niche of knowledge we have to them and watch them go and do it. And that's number one. Number two, they've done it. So over three last three years, COVID, in the middle of COVID is when we launched this, which is great, right? We're giving everything away in the middle of COVID. Over the last three years, they have done training of leaders in 74 countries over the last three years. So these networks who have created their own generosity training have gone around the globe and done training in 74 countries. We've had 5,000 leaders in China trained in the last two years on biblical generosity. Wow. And I don't even know they're doing it. Like they send me an email afterwards and goes, hey, by the way, we just trained 3,000 pastors in China this week. And I'm like, great, tell me the stories. And so they come back with the stories and they're amazing. So all I'm doing is I've created a process to help them contextualize and create their own training through the Generosity Design Lab, and they are spreading it like wildfire. We don't even know what we're doing yet. We're still learning how to work the process and how to make sure the network's right. But 74 countries over three years, 12,000 leaders they've reached. That's just what we can count. That's not counting how it goes out into their networks. has been a phenomenal read. So I'm super pumped about it, super pumped, as you can tell. Yeah, so Patrick, you spent eight years with Generous Church in the U.S. and now three years internationally, and it's very evident how excited you are about the work that you do. I'd love to hear what you're excited about coming down the road in the next five, ten years for you and for Generous Church. So here's what's really exciting. A couple of things. Number one, I figured out why it's so hard to spread things in the West, like why it's so hard. Okay, so like this has already been written. People have figured this out. But let me explain to you real quick. This is really cool. So if you look at all the cultures of the world and you put them on a four axis graph, okay, four quadrant graph, like we love to do in the business world, we all have our four quadrant graphs. Okay, if one axis is hierarchy, they have high hierarchy or low hierarchy in their country. And then the other axis is group. They are a high group country or low group country. Another word to say low group is individualistic. Okay. Then basically that is the culture you're walking into. So the U.S. is we don't have a hierarchy. We're low hierarchy, but we're also low group. We're highly individualistic people, right? It's what the U.S. culture is built upon. And there's great value in that in some ways. But if you're trying to spread an idea like generosity, that's why it's so hard to spread it in the U.S., right? Because we're so individualistic. By the way, the cultures that are harder, even harder than the U.S., high hierarchy, low group. Okay, London, Australia, those have a very hierarchical, you know, you have a queen, you have a hierarchy. And you also have very low group individualistic. That's even harder to spread. But the countries that have low hierarchy and high group, things spread like wildfire there. So Latin America, the church is exploding in Latin America because you have low hierarchy, but you have a very high group culture. Okay, I was just in Indonesia, Indonesia, those countries over there, Malaysia, all of those They have a hierarchy, but they also have high group. And so if you get the right influencers and you get the right hierarchy to buy into this idea of generosity, then it spreads in the group very quickly. I just had a two and a half day design lab with, was it Malaysia? I can't remember who. It was one of those countries over there. And then I asked them like a week later, what's your vision for spreading this? They said, oh, we want to see a culture 
of generosity across this country. Like that's what we're going to do. And they're the right people to do it because they are respected throughout all their country. So that's number one I get excited because you can target countries to spread ideas. And that's really exciting. When you open up the globe, you can bring this message of generosity to countries that have high group cultures. And if you have the right influencers, if you have the right people working on it, who they're very gifted, they'll do it. You just have to catalyze them. That's number one. Number two, I think collaboration is going to open up in the generosity space all around the world. I think you're going to see greater collaboration among what networks do I have that you might serve with what you do in the space. And then I think that collaboration is going to open up because I think it's just the opportunities there. And there's so many people working toward this idea globally that I think they're seeing the need that we got to collaborate. We got to open up our databases. We got to open up how we serve. So right now I'm getting referred into networks and I'm referring other generosity players globally into networks. And I think we're going to up that collaboration. So I get super pumped about that. Number three, gosh, I mean, I can't tell you. You take the message of generosity to cultures who have nothing and to see them embrace it, it's phenomenal. So this is not a message just for the West. And I have to fight through that. Like, that's what they see me as. Like, of course you would talk about generosity. You're from the West, right? But when you really frame it around discipleship and you talk about whole life generosity, that we can all be generous with something that God's given us, I mean, they do it better than I do it. And that's exciting, too. I've seen Upper Egypt where people have nothing take this message. We just got pictures from South Sudan, which is if you know South Sudan, it's been war and they don't have a lot. But you sit there watching around one of the videos that we show and having a discussion around generosity to see these people doing it. Malawi. Right now in Malawi, I bet you we have a thousand Sunday schools that are going through a 16 week generosity training that we helped a Malawi ministry create for Sunday schools all around Malawi. And it's spreading like wildfire. So remember, low hierarchy, high group is where this message will spread. And we're seeing it. And if we can collaborate and we can all work together and have no kingdoms and give everything away as God gives it to us, I think we're going to see a wildfire. Which, by the way, so let's get honest for a second. Everybody always asks me, well, what are you doing in the U.S.? Okay, so I prayed about that. I fasted about that. And I just there have been no doors opened for the message, even though I've got this experience with this message. But that's okay. I mean, if God wants to do something, he'll open a door here. Maybe it's guys like you speaking in podcasts and others who are doing great work. I just think the frontier is out there in my mind to take this message out there. So that's what I'm excited about. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting landscape in the U.S. compared to the rest of the world. And yeah, I guess we'll have to see what God's plans are. He certainly has been working a lot over the last two decades in the generosity space in the U.S., and there has been a lot of fruit from that. And we'll see what he's doing. He's the ultimate author of the story. But as we get to the end of the episode here, I wanted to leave a second for our manager minute We like to end every episode with one practical action our listeners can take to steward God's wealth wisely and to manage on his behalf. So do you have any suggestions for our listeners? So I have something that's really impacted me, that it's more of a practical thing on freeing yourself to live generously, okay? There was a study that was done, I think I saw it on Forbes, but in the U.S., regardless of your education level and your profession, 
the typical American spends 50% of their income on two items. And this is if you're a doctor or if you're assembly line worker. If you look at the average budget in America, regardless of what your income is, the average American spends around 50% on two items, houses and cars. It's America's love affair with houses and cars. So one thing I would encourage you to do is you've got to have margin and you have to be intentional about margin early on. And the two biggest leverage points I see is what house you live in and what car you drive. So about three years ago, we decided we were going to be a one car family, which makes no sense in America. Like you're all busy. (laughs) You're a two car family. But we said, nope, we're going to be a one car family. And yeah, it's a little bit more. You have to be a little more intentional, but it's not sacrifice at all. And I think we spend less than 2% of our income on cars right now. On house, we decided we're going to live simply. And so we've really simplified where we live. I think with car and house alone, we probably spend less than 10% of those two items if you look at our overall budget. Now, I know some people live in other parts of the country that are a lot more expensive and it's never going to be 10%. But wherever you live, like what if you could get 20 to 30% margin that you're not spending on house and car and free that up? I just thought about starting a campaign in the U.S. among Christians, so something to have to do with like your house and your car. Like you could free up 25% of your income just to give away if you would just like live prudently in those two areas alone. So that's one thing is you have to free up margin. The second thing is leverage globally. Like when you have that margin to be freed up, you can do so much leverage. It's really leverage, really. Think about it. You're leveraging house and car down in order to have more margin. And then with that margin, you take that out around the globe and you invest in a disciple making movements around the globe, you know, and you get total leverage on that because of the arbitrage between standards of living in other parts of the world in the U.S. It's like a double whammy to me is the way I look at it. So that's what we're trying to do. And that's what I would encourage people to do. Well, Patrick, how can people learn more about Generous Church? And are there any ways that listeners can get involved? Yeah, totally. So come with me globally, work with a network. I'll take anybody globally with me. If you have a passion for generosity, you can travel globally. I will introduce you to some of the coolest people you'll ever meet in your life. And we will help them design generosity training. So Patrick at GenerousChurch.com, you email me. I'll take you around the globe and give you a firsthand experience of how this spreads. I'm already doing that. I took people to Moldova right when the Ukraine war broke out. That was sort of interesting to do, but we still have memories of doing that. Here's a great quote, and I say this everywhere I go. History is made among friends. Therefore, go and make friends. History is made among friends. Therefore, go and make friends. And that's all I want to do at Generous Church. If you are passionate about generosity, if you want to have great friends around the globe and come go with me, then just email Patrick at Generous Church. Go to our website, generouschurch.com. You can sign up for our monthly prayer e-newsletter where we're praying for this movement of generosity. So, hey, I just want to make friends to take this message around the globe. That's awesome. And I encourage anyone out there to do that. I would just love to see everything that you're doing continue to explode. God is clearly has his hand on your work, and I'm excited to see what he does over the next five, ten years. 
Patrick, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us, to share everything that God's been doing through your life and just to share your story. Yeah, it's great to be with you guys. I love what you do. By the way, I put Cody, I put his picture on my LinkedIn page because I'm 59. How old are you, Cody? You about 18? Are you 19 yet? Have you, are you broken 20? <laughs> I just turned 29. <laughs> we need the young generation. We need the next leaders on this movement of generosity. I'm the old man now. So think about this. I started this when I was 35. So you guys have decades and decades. My decades are coming to an end, but you're just starting. So just keep going, guys. This is such an important message for the church. Such an important message. And I love what you do. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any references or links from today's show, you can find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 57. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.